and a couple of things. Um, our prayer this morning was not one that I wrote. It comes from a book called Gorillas of Grace, which is a lovely prayer resource book if you are interested in it. Um, also, for those of you who are interested, we have begun a new um, Sunday school study. We started it this morning, so there's still time to catch up if you're interested in it. It is called Hope Beyond Your Tears, and it's written by Trevor Hudson. And it is a study in which we journey through... Um, Mary Magdalene's experience as she has just watched Christ die and then she goes to the tomb to care for his body and finds the tomb empty. It's a study that looks at grief, that looks at death, that looks at suffering and tries to make sense of those things in the world and then also offers that amidst those things there's resurrection hope. And the, the reason we decided to do this study is because we're in a suffering world and making sense of how do we both look and sit in the suffering that's happening while also understand that there is resurrection hope is something we decided we really had a need for. This book also allows us to better understand maybe not just our own grief, but the grief of others and how to greet that well. Sometimes it's really hard to know how to, how to say, I'm with you, I care about you, or what to say at all to someone who's experiencing some kind of grief. And so this book helps us learn how to be good caregivers to other people who are grieving, which is important. And so if you're interested in that Bible study, Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., we are going to continue it. This morning, we just did the introduction in chapter one. So next week, we're going to read chapter two and three. The chapters are maybe four to five pages. So it's, it's good reading, good short reading. Um, and those things, um, we had some difficulty getting the books in this week. And so I very legally made copies of it, and those things are available in the narthex. Um, the introduction and chapter one are stapled together, and then chapter two and three. So if you would like to grab those, please do, and we'll just continue very legally reproducing that for you um, so that you don't have to buy a $10 book on Amazon. Um, I just wanted to extend that invitation as I forgot to do that during the announcements. And as we journey towards Lent, I think it's a really good resource for understanding suffering and resurrection and that those two things actually coexist very deeply. Our scripture lessons this morning comes first from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 21 through 31. And so I invite you now to hear these words from Isaiah. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a, a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes rulers of earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows upon them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like a stubble, to whom then will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your, up your eyes high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts and numbers them, calling them all by name. Because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my Lord? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youth will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. In our second scripture, scripture lesson this morning, sorry, that was the Alamance County. Sometimes it just, just comes right out. Our second scripture lesson this morning, friends, comes from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. And he answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went through Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogue and casting out demons. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. If you have been here a while, or maybe you're new, um, if you've heard me preach before, very, very rarely, if ever, do I try to tackle two scriptures at once. It almost never happens, um, partially because that's double the work for me. That means I have to read commentaries on like a lot of different things. But also, I am someone who really, really likes to just sit deeply in one scripture at a time, to understand what is happening. And sometimes the scriptures that are paired together in the lectionary don't make any sense together. Sometimes you're really forcing things that maybe don't quite fit together puzzle-wise. This week, however, I deeply love both of these scripture lessons, and I wanted to pay attention to both of them. Because Isaiah is the great lyricist or the poet of the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah's words are so profound. They're quoted in great works of poetry. They're quoted in great works of literature. They're quoted in great works of U2, as in the band. Um, U2 has had, if you didn't know this, chart-topping hits for six decades straight. They're the only band to achieve that. They've also only been around for 41 years, so I'll let you figure that math out because it took me a while. In their 1983 song, Drowning Man, which I couldn't convince Music Nick to play this morning. I don't know why. U2 actually quotes this scripture from Isaiah. Isaiah. 
It literally says, take my hand, you know I'll be there. If you can, I'll cross the sky for your love. Give you what I hold dear, hold on, hold on tightly. Rise up, rise up with wings like eagles. You run, you run, you run and not grow weary. Isaiah is a powerhouse. Isaiah's words echo throughout time. He's quoted over and over again, and truly it's wild because Isaiah is a prophet who's prophesying from 739 to 681 BC. These are literally thousands of year old words, and they're showing up in places like U2 lyrics. The words that we read today are words that are being written in an incredibly difficult time. They're not lighthearted. They're words for hopeless and desperate people. Isaiah is living in a time period for the Jewish people that is arguably one of their most difficult, at least as documented in the Bible. They're living in what we now commonly call the Babylonian exile. And this is a period of time when there's just devastating circumstances for God's people. They have been conquered. They've lost their land that was promised to them by God. The society as they know it has been completely upended. People are being displaced. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, is seizing lands and deporting people from their home particularly people of wealth and education and importance. People who are lowly, who are farmers, people who won't disturb him, he keeps where they are to further enslave them. The Jewish king has been carried away in chains. To put it simply, the Jewish people are under occupation. They're being killed and conquered and oppressed and we haven't really learned anything from this. In the midst of this deep tragedy of this displacement of one group of people conquering another group of people, Isaiah speaks these words to remind God's people that God is present among them. That God is with those who are suffering, that this is who God is. That when any of God's people are displaced, are being hurt, are being spread around like grasshoppers, God is there too. That there is no ruler or conqueror who is equivalent to God. That while these oppressed people are nameless to those who are scattering them about, God knows each of their names. That none of them could be hidden from God's sight. That no one has been disregarded by God that God will give power to them when they are weary, that God will strengthen them, that God will mount them up on eagles' wings. Isaiah writes this to his community, to the people around him who are suffering, to remind them that this is who God is. That at God's essence, God is with those people who are oppressed, who are persecuted, who are hurting, who are under siege. Isaiah writes that truth in 751 BC. And it becomes a constant truth. 
It reveals to us the nature of who God is, not just in that season, but in every single season of life. And if we jump forward several hundred years to the Gospel of Mark, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we find the same truth. When we read today's scripture out of Mark, where we're at is Jesus calling his first disciples, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, He's beginning his ministry. In fact, the scripture we read last week, if you were here, was right before this chapter out of Mark. And that scripture was Jesus' very first act in ministry. And what he did on his very first like day on the job was go into a local synagogue and he began teaching. And his teaching was so outlandish, it was nothing like the scribes normally teach, that people were upset at least the scribes were. For the community witnessing Jesus' preaching, they were moved like they'd never been moved before because he preached in a way they'd never heard. Jesus comes in swinging, straight out the gate. He's disrupting the synagogue. He's teaching as if it is his place. For the people in the synagogue, for the scribes, we talked about a little bit last week how this probably is just like incredibly upsetting. Jesus is poor. He has no credentials. He has no education, really. He doesn't have any leadership in the synagogue. He just walks in and acts like he owns the place and he knows everything about God. He is this wild new guy on the block. And to be more annoying, the people like him more than the pastor who's been there. And that is simultaneously the best and worst feeling, right? You bring in this guest preacher and everyone loves them and you're like, oh, yay, everyone loved them. And then you go, everyone loved them. I'm gonna lose my job. In the synagogue, as if Jesus hasn't already caused enough upset, a man wanders in and he is perceived by the community to be demon-possessed. And what we're told happens is that Jesus heals him. What we would call an exorcism occurs. And as if he hadn't disrupted things enough already, this really creates tension in the community. Jesus rebukes what is called an unclean spirit. And it is difficult. All of a sudden, people are talking about him. He is healed on the Sabbath. That's a major no. And while this scripture, this idea of demons and healing was and still is really difficult for us to make sense of in a modern world, because we're talking about a first century world, when the spiritual and physical is completely different, a time period when bleeding or skin conditions or illness mean you're unclean and you live in exile. We're talking about a time when illness is a form of punishment for sin and mental health literally just doesn't exist. When everything is understood to be an act of God. Whether or not this man holds a demon truthfully doesn't matter and we could debate all day and not know. The point to this story is the miracle. That straight out of the gate, Jesus comes in 
healing. And every time Jesus heals in scripture, there's a point behind the physical healing. Every time he heals in scripture, he heals someone back to community and then heals the community back to them. While we don't know the details of this demon-possessed man's life, what we do know is him existing in the way he does means he would be completely isolated, he would often be untouched, he'd be unclean. And what happens when Jesus heals him, when he performs this miracle, is he forces people back together. He forces reconciliation. He forces a community back together. And he does it for the first time in God's house. This week, as we meet Jesus, he's fresh off of doing that very scandalous activity. And he does it again. Having preached in the temple, he travels with James and John and Simon Peter and Andrew back to Simon Peter's home. And here he meets Peter's mother-in-law. And truly, this is the weirdest part of the scripture is that like disciples have lives. Peter has a mother-in-law. That means at some point, Peter has had a wife, I would assume. That's generally how that happens. <laughs> Peter has a home. He's a real person with a real family. And we have no idea what that looks like because this is the closest glimpse we get of it. But what is his relationship with his mother-in-law? What is her name even? There's no mention of a wife, so where is she? Perhaps Peter is a widower, and he lives with his mother-in-law who helps to care for unmentioned children. Perhaps there's no children, and he and his unmentioned wife are caring for her sick mother together. This is a time when people often lived in community. Perhaps there's no children and no wife. Maybe it's just Peter and his mother-in-law. Perhaps they've been through something together. And so Peter and her exist in this newfound form of community and family. We don't know what his situation is, but Peter has a home and she is there. And she's not able or ready to entertain Peter and his guests. Rather, she is sick in bed. And this means in the home, she probably would have been tucked away to a part of the home other people don't enter, right? Generally, people don't come into your living room where you also sleep. Generally, you're not laying in bed and also entertaining. Jesus comes into the home and he goes to her in what would have been considered a very intimate and inappropriate place for Jesus to be. That is at her bedside. He meets her where she is as she is sick. And what Jesus does is he offers her this incredibly gentle touch. He holds her hand in a sort of way, and scripture tells us that she rises up, that she's made well. And truly, the best translation for the Greek word describing this goes directly to resurrection. What Jesus does for her is resurrection. Jesus resurrects her from this illness. He heals her. He performs another miracle, and he does it in this private home 
tucked away with someone who probably no one else cares about, except for maybe Peter and the rest of the household. There's no one there to watch it. There's no one there to gawk except for the disciples. And in this moment, she is restored. Peter's little family, however it is, is restored. On the flip side of this, we have Jesus in the middle of the town. And he meets more demon-possessed people. This seems to be like a very common problem in this particular town. And my guess is these people actually have all sorts of different issues happening. And for one reason or another, they're just being labeled as demon-possessed. There's probably a million different issues. And in this world, people don't know how to make sense of them. And so everything is demons or God. All the same factors from last week apply to this one. This person, these people are probably living in exile. This community has no understanding of them. Perhaps whatever, whatever it is that's happening within them is understood to be the result of sin or punishment or evil. Whatever is going on, it's isolating. And so what happens, not this time tucked away in a household, but in the middle of the public eye, in the middle of the community, Jesus starts healing people. He finds more people in need and he greets them with the same gentle, loving touch. And this entire community is restored because suddenly all these people who are labeled demon-possessed have community again and suddenly this community who has all these people they've been separated from have them again. What Jesus did for one household, he then does for a whole community. And that, friends, is basically what Isaiah was trying to tell us. That this is who God is. That it does not change. That God, that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, they're all beings who are intimately close and present and involved in the lives of their children especially those who are isolated or oppressed or harmed or under siege, especially those who aren't allowed to thrive in community. Isaiah proclaims that we serve a God who is in all things, who is interacting with all things, who is restoring all things in the name of love, a God who is present with the least of these, a God who is liberating people. And Jesus proves this to be fundamental to his ministry too because it's the first thing he starts doing as soon as he gets to work. He starts breaking down walls and liberating people. He starts offering kindness and gentle touches to people who have not had them. And this, friends, will be why he dies. As we move towards Lent, this is the truth that we're moving towards that the nature of God in the world does not change. From Isaiah until Mark until now, it is a constant truth that whenever any of God's people are displaced, whenever they're spread around like grasshoppers, God is with them. That there is no ruler or conqueror who is equivalent to God. That while oppressed people are nameless, God knows each of their names. That while they're scattered about, they cannot be hidden from God. 
that no one is disregarded by God, that God gives the weary power, strengthens those in need of strength, and mounts people up on eagles' wings. This is who God is. This is who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And ultimately, this is why he will die. Ultimately, God, Jesus is put to death for being gentle to people, for for liberating them, for liberating whole communities and restoring them to each other. Ultimately, Jesus is put to death for entering into intimate spaces and offering love, for healing for preaching radically unlike anyone else ever has and upending the synagogue entirely. Lent is fast approaching, friends. It is coming, and we often have this temptation to live in it in very shallow ways, to engage it as a season of going without sugar in the hopes that maybe we'll secretly lose 10 pounds. Sometimes we engage it as a season that we completely ignore. Sometimes we have no idea what to do with it because we weren't raised in a tradition that celebrated it. But the truth of Lent is that it's meant to be a season that acknowledges that Christ will die and sitting in the wilderness with Christ means sitting in this truth. That God is nearby and intimately close to those who are hurting to those who are experiencing wilderness, trying to create community in it. And so we are invited into this two-piece thing of knowing God is close and also trying to do this work. That is what Lent is about, friends. And so as we continue to move towards it, my invitation to you this morning is to hear the truth in Isaiah and in Mark and right now that God is a God who is alongside people who are under siege, who are hurting, who are oppressed, that God is a God who heals and performs miracles and restores entire communities, restores us to people who we never could imagine being restored to or maybe never wanted to be restored to. As we approach Lent, my challenge is to not rob Christ's death and life of this truth to let it be known, to let it be at the forefront, and to let whatever your Lent journey it is, whatever thing you're thinking about giving up or taking on or not doing at all, to just let this keep being true. That this is who God is, and it will remain unchanging for this season of Lent and for all the seasons to come. Thanks be to God. At this time, I'm going to invite Nick to come back out and to lead us in a time of um, reflection and praise to God as we have received some good news this morning, hopefully.